Okay, so this week the theme is joy. We've looked at peace, we've looked at hope, we've looked at love, and we're going to look at joy. And we do this through Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11 in this particular season. And so today we'll be in verses 10 and 11. Uh, for those of you in here who are like super smart, maybe smarter than me, and want exegetical theological preaching, hopefully that'll be here. But for the sake of this series, we're going to focus on this theme of joy more than sort of tapping under every branch and every leaf of, of the text. But I think it'll be true to God's word, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to take that and, and encourage us and change us a little more today. So Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, or not only that, we also rejoice. We have joy, we experience joy, we express joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that we have already got to say together and sing together and through this art see together. And we pray now that you would help us to, to, to locate ourselves and get really, really present again, as I pray we already have, to be, to be here in this moment, to not seek to hear from a man, but to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open again our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, ears of our hearts, the whole self of our hearts to, to commune with you through your truth. We pray you would sanctify us in it, set us apart in it, shape us by it for your glory, for the good of our own souls and the good of our city and the people our missional communities serve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard of people getting a, a certain type of gift of inheritance or maybe a lottery, winning the lottery. Uh, Side note, my brother, that used to be what he'd give me for Christmas every year was lottery tickets, right? Good old family redneck Christmas. But uh, some of these gifts that you receive have conditions attached to them. Particularly one time I remember hearing of someone getting the gift of an inheritance and because they didn't want the family members to like just become lazy, quit their jobs, not do anything, they're like, you get a little bit now and then when you like turn 60 years old, you get the big payoff. Now, for some of us, that would be like super frustrating. Right? Now, you might have some peace because you know I have security. And you might have some hope because you know that you have this great thing waiting on you. And you might have some even love, right? Like, I'm glad you thought of me. But when it came to the joy that you experienced actually in the present, you might think, I just got to wait on that. This can be how it is when it comes to how we experience the gospel. We can feel like the joy that he gives is just irrelevant in the present. Sure, we're thankful for it, peace, hope, and love. One day we will all be rejoicing. But what about now? What about now? If we think of the whole story of God through the scriptures, it's a story of a people wrestling to experience the fullness of the joy of God in the present. You could even think that this is fundamental to what happens in the Garden of Eden. Right? God has given them this place, but they want more. They want more. 
If we think of what sin is, even at its root throughout our lives, it's a grasping to say, God, you are not enough now. Most of us would agree, at least on paper, you are enough for my past and you may be enough for my future, but right now I cannot square up the reality of my sin, my suffering, or the satanic influence that is in my life to come up with a real and authentic experience of this joy you say that I am to have. And even if we read through the scriptures, a joy we're commanded to have. That really messes with some of us, right? Some of you are like, God, that kind of makes me angry that you would command me to experience some level of an emotional presence. And yet joy is our birthright. Joy is our calling. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Biblical joy isn't superficial. It's deep. It's not circumstantial. We could say it's consequential. Biblical joy is not personality dependent. It is not story exempted. It is not also those sorrow absent. When the Bible speaks of joy, it is a delight in the depths of our soul that's produced by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw this earlier, the love of God in verse 5 that is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It is about seeing and savoring Jesus in spite of our circumstances, whether those be external or internal. And Romans 5, 1 through 11, culminates in this call for us to rejoice in the gospel of the glory of God that we have been reconciled. But if I'm convinced of one thing, is that we cannot guilt one another into the fruits of the Spirit. And so if that's what you're feeling right now, I'm going to say that's, that's, that's not the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't want to guilt you or shame you into joy, but He does want to grow us into it. How does He do that? He's wanting to teach us today a little bit more through His Word how to rejoice in the gospel now and not just the gospel of later. So how does that happen? The first thing we see here is this happens by receiving the gospel it's too good to be true reality. We've got to receive it. Now, if we look at, at these verses, we have to remember they are in the context of four of what we might say the most powerful, preached on, wrote on chapters in the whole Bible. Romans 5 through 8. I remember when I went to Bible college, one of the first books I got, I'm trying to remember the name of it, it was by John Stott, but it was just on Romans 5 through 8. You remember the name, Joe? Basic Christianity or something. It's amazing. Go get it. Go read it. It's just pouring out the gospel from these texts. But it's important that when we hear the scripture writers, particularly Paul, talk about joy, is we're not talking about someone who is living in a state of denial. Right? Some of us, when we hear talk about joy, we're like, oh, the only way that I can have joy is just to put my head in the sand, not tell the truth about how I feel, not tell the truth about my world, not tell the truth about my past, not tell the truth about my personality. But if we look through these scriptures, Romans 5, 1 through 11 is really the introduction for chapters that wrestle with how hard it is to be a Christian in this world. I mean, right after these first 11 verses, in verses 12 through 21 of Romans chapter 5, is going to be the fact that we were all born in Adam. 
That is, we are born with this ancestral story, this original sin that is not just something that we are slapped on with that we didn't want, but something that we willingly participate in. We are people who are born into a story that is disrupted, that is racked with sin. We're born into a world full of other people, all of us in here right now, apart from the grace of God, are living in stories of rebellion and disruption and shame and guilt and fear, abandonment, rejection, addiction, managed relationships. It's just all around us. That's what Romans 5 is saying. Paul's going to go right there after he says we're people to rejoice. Then in chapter 6, he's going to talk about this call to not let sin reign in our lives. But why is he having to call us to do that? Because it's not natural. This isn't easy. And then he's going to get to chapter 7 and he's going to talk about his experience. And I know this is debated, but this experience of how I actually don't do what I want to do. And what I want to do, I don't do. Paul is saying like, hey, I'm, I'm calling you to joy But here, the rest of the story is some days in my life I feel like a spiritual sort of disassociative, psychophrenic, whatever label you want to put on this disorder of like, I don't know what is wrong with me. Because I say I want to do this and I just don't do it. And then I I don't do the things that I say I want to do. Then in chapter 8, again, chapter 8 is going to end with this epic good news like chapter 5 begins with of how nothing can separate us from the love of God. But also in chapter 8, if you're not, he talks about how we live in a creation that is groaning. It's groaning. Romans 8, 23. He talks about how we live in a world as people who groan and hope. And sometimes, he says in chapter 8, it's so bad... We can't even pray. Like we actually have to just depend that the Holy Spirit knows how to put words to it because we can't. You ever been there where you're like, I know I'm supposed to pray. I don't even, I can't even do that. Paul does. Then in chapter 8 again, he says, you know, a lot of times it's going to feel like all our lives are as sheep being led to a slaughter. So we need to feel that in a sermon on joy because that's the context of Romans 5, 1 through 11. So how do we have joy? How can Paul be saying we rejoice in the gospel if that's what we're to expect that a lot of our lives and experience is going to be like? We've got to have a reality that is bigger than the experiences that we faced. And this is what he is saying to us. Verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. What is he saying? Yes, your past has a lot of power, but it does not have defining power. He is saying in these same texts that you were dead, but you are now alive. He is saying to us what he will say in Romans 8 1. There is therefore now, I want to underline that word now for the sake of our sermon, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So right now, you're living in that battle with sin. You're living in that battle with suffering. This is the scandalous, too-good-to-be-true news. Right now, not later, when Jesus returns, and not just in your past, but now there is no condemnation for you. Your flesh does not want to allow you to believe that. And there are some people in your lives who do not want to allow you to believe that. There is a whole world that does not want to allow you to believe that. But that's the gospel. Your past has lost its defining power. Also, though, the text is saying here that your future is secure. If Jesus has saved you when you were at your worst, when you didn't want him, when you couldn't care about him, when you were enemies, if he's reconciled you, then now there is nothing you can do to take him away from you. The gospel says at the end of Romans 7 where Paul is crying out, he says, oh, who will deliver me from this this body of death? He says, thanks be to God for Christ Jesus. So not only does your past not define your future or your presence, your fight doesn't define your future. I want to say that again. What do I mean? That battle that you're having with sin right now, it does not define your place before the Father, and it does not define your future with the Father. That may sound like too good to be true, but this is the gospel. You are children of God, heirs of the kingdom. And so what the Romans 5, 6 through 8 tell us is that because your past has lost its power, because your future is secure, your present now is possible. You can change. You can grow. You can lay down your defenses. You don't got to prove yourself anymore. You can trust in the power of God because you don't have to fight to hang on for your life because your life is already secure. So this is how while Romans 8 will end, how it ends is there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Nothing includes yourself. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Including yourself. I don't know how you can read Romans 5 through 8 and not come apart from that conclusion because it's all about the believer's battle with sin. If God chose you in the past, has promised you his future and has sealed that with the blood of Christ and the presence of the Spirit, then he's with you now. You know, this is why the first verses of Romans 6 are this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul knows that if you really, really believe that, that's going to be the next question. If you really get the gospel of the grace of God, you will say, well, then does that mean I just get to do whatever I want? Or the other? And usually it's not that. So let me say it. The Pharisee in your heart doesn't say that I get to do whatever I want. Trust me. The Pharisee in your heart is thinking about somebody else. The Pharisee in your heart is saying, if that's true, does that mean that they get to do whatever they want? And now we have to ask ourselves who we're trusting in. And we have to ask ourselves the honest question, have we really received the gospel? Because I'll tell you, if there's ever a group of people in the Bible who are not marked by joy, it's Pharisees. It's people who are always wanting to know that ledger better be right. 
there better be justice. If that's the stance of your heart, then you have yet to rest in the finished work of Christ, and probably not for other people, but for yourself. And you're so upset that other people would get to enjoy their lives while you don't get to enjoy yours. So you've got to receive the gospel. You've got to receive the gospel. I mentioned my mama a few weeks ago in this, and this just came to my mind again. Sorry to talk about her so much. When we did our Christmas party, we had to let her go last. And the reason we had to let her go last was not just because she was like the matriarch, because maybe she would have went first if that's the case. It's because she took so, so long. So long. I mean, it was so bad that even as a, they didn't even force us kids to stay in there during the whole thing. And it wasn't because she got like just extra amount of presents. It was because this meant the world to her. I mean, her, her posture was humility. So she just, I mean, a lot of it's just cards. And she's sitting there in her chair, and literally she just looks down at it, and she starts crying. Every time. Because no matter what she did, she just, was, she just was thinking, I don't deserve this. And she wasn't being putting on. She's being sincere. She'd act like she was surprised that anybody would get her anything. And it wasn't just her posture, but it was personal. Partially why it took so long. is She read every line of every card. Let's be honest. We don't read the stuff in the cards that other people... She didn't read what... She wrote what Hallmark wrote in there. As if I actually even read that, probably, if I got her a card, just to be honest. She would read it, and she's weeping through, like, some cheesy thing, you know, that not, even, not your original writing, and because it was personal. I mean, she would read the name tags that you stuck on there, slowly. It was so personal. I mean, in this word reconciliation we're talking about here, that's a personal word. It's a friendship word, and it was powerful. So she's, she's crying on every line she reads, and the older she gets, the more she cries because it's just like it becomes more meaningful. And she was so patient because this was not obligatory. It was not a duty. And it wasn't an embarrassment to receive the gifts because in a strange way... It, you know, we're embarrassed when things become about us. But she was in this posture, it seemed, of self-forgetfulness. Just enjoying the presence of people and the presence that they gave her. I think in some ways that's a picture of what we're being called to in the reception of the gospel. If we want to receive this powerfully, if there's any chance that we get any joy out of the gospel, then it has got to be something that we soak in. You've got to humbly accept it. You know, it takes a lot of humility to accept the gospel. It's not humility that gets in our way. It's pride. We want to prove ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. And the first step to receiving the gospel in a way that changes your life is you have to lay down all your defenses you got to say, I have nothing to offer. you have to say, I'm the most needy person in the room. And I own that. No more comparison. 
That's like the only thing you have to bring to this is your need. It's a shot to your pride, but it's the only way to joy. It's got to be personal. Like you've got to actually believe that God wants you to have this gospel. That he wrote your name on the name tag. That he gave you the card that said he loved you. You've got to believe that in your brokenness, it may seem too good to be true, but this is the gospel. This is the grace of God. You've got to believe in your brokenness that, yes, the response may be, well, should, are we saying we just sin that grace may abound? You've got, to, you've got to receive it until you think the enemy's going to say that to you. And your shame and your guilt and your fear, and for some of you, in your self-righteousness. We talked about the prodigal son. The good news is that God loves the older brothers as much as he loves the younger brothers. Some of you need to repent for being bad, and some of you need to repent for being so darn good. Because your goodness is an attempt to make you feel like you deserve to be loved. And you deserve to have people pay attention to you, and you deserve to be given worth and shown value and be appreciated. And the father's saying, I've already given you all of that. And it's got to be powerful. You've got to be willing to publicly share it. You've got to enjoy it in front of other people. That's what, like, if you're embarrassed to receive the gospel in front of the world then you've not yet grown to that place of where you realize this is, this is not even really about me and how others perceive me. This is about this great news of what God has done. And then it's got to be patient. Inhabit the tension of these four chapters. You're going to have to do it over and over again. You're going to have to do it versus all of the voices that would come against you. But that's the first step. How can we have joy now? It starts by receiving the gospel that is too good to be true. You've got to receive it. Like, this is really true. No matter how I feel, no matter what others say, no matter what my story says, this is true. But the second thing is you have to rejoice in it. So we, receive, we grow in the gospel of now and not later, the gospel of joy, by re receiving it is too good to be true, but we've got to rejoice in it. It's not enough. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, praise is the consummation of any true experience of, of love or joy. Like it's got, you've got to rejoice in it. You can't just receive it in your head. It's got to make that hard journey down that whatever 12, 18, 16 inches into your heart. And that takes work. That's why Paul says, notice verse 11, more than that, or not only that, not only did we just receive this reconciliation, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. He is saying if your past is settled, your future is secure, and your present is empowered, then there should be rejoicing. I think the word should is appropriate in this context. That's a word you've got to be really careful with, right? We joke about saying how people should all over themselves all the time, right? Like, should this, should that, should. But I'm saying the consequence of the reception of the gospel should be 
that joy overflows in our life. Now again, we have to remember that joy is not manufactured happiness. Joy is not you, you feeling, you know, all, feeling just a, a non-stop high. In the Bible, joy always, always can exist alongside suffering. Hard times. If there is no joy, and again, this is where it gets to be too good to be true. And you got to remember Romans 5 to 8. Go read it all. I don't need to keep just referring back. It's a battle in there. If there is not also joy alongside your sin, your suffering, and your satanic attack, that should be viewed as a check engine light on your reception of the gospel in that moment. This is, this is hard to accept, right? But this is the biblical paradox, the biblical tension, is that joy can coexist as a fruit of the Spirit. It's a characteristic, characteristic of the kingdom alongside sin and suffering and satanic attack. And it's the enemy's trick to cause us not to pursue that, not to receive that, not to accept that, because guess what kills the power of sin and suffering and Satan more than anything? It's the joy of the Lord. We don't kill our sin by focusing on our sin. We don't endure our suffering by focusing on our suffering. And we don't defeat the works of the enemy by focusing on those. We do those when our focus becomes the gifts of the gospel. When in the middle of that battle we realize that the reconciliation we have with God is not based on our performance, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is anything but faking. This is a reception of the truth of the gospel by faith. This is how joy isn't rooted in circumstances. But high joy is a consequence of the good news of the kingdom of Christ. Experiences of hurt, anger, fear, guilt, shame, loneliness, sadness, however long you want to make the list, are not problems for joy, but pathways to joy if they are met simultaneously with the truth of the gospel. Jesus took on all of those things in his life or on the cross to show us that this is the way that we can live in this life for the joy that is set before us. One New Testament scholar, I, I like this, read this recently, uh, N.T. Wright, if you want to hear that, great biblical scholar, so this is not some just sort of pop psychology type stuff. Joy comes in the morning, but spell morning with the U. The, the psalm, right? Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Joyful are those who mourn. How does that make sense? Because the comfort of the Father always coincides with the sorrow of our hearts. This is why on that first Christmas they said, I bring you tidings of great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They lived in a, in a dark time. 
but they were given a lot of hope so that they could live with joy. And that gift is ours. So if we receive it like Mama, I want to say now that we want to rejoice like Jess. That's my brother's name. So at the risk of too much personal information. Now we're going to go to my brother. So if anyone was ever to like get disciplined on Christmas, it would have been my brother. I don't know how many times I saw my dad curl that bottom lip. Just get in that bathroom, right? And you know what's going to happen in there, right? He got in trouble. He was the middle child, and he lived up to the stereotype beyond your, uh, your imagination. If, say, if Santa Claus was keeping a list, he was on the naughty list. And he would agree with you if he was here, and so would my parents. And uh, Cassie went to high school with him, so she could agree too, and some others. But here would come Christmas. And so much grace. And you talk about memories sometimes when you get together at Christmas and the extended family, you're like, you got these same stories you repeat. Well, this is one of those stories. So one of those years, of course, who knows what my brother done the week before, the day before, whatever. And he gets this 410 shotgun for a present. And he just goes wild. He's so subdued now. People's personalities change to a certain degree. But anyway, I mean, he had to be the center of attention all the time. And when he got this gift, he just like starts running laps in the church, right? You'd think that he was at a good old school camp meeting or something. I mean, he's running laps in the, in the house. He's screaming. He's jumping. It's going over the top. And everybody else just can't help but get excited. And I mean, you'd have thought he'd won the Super Bowl. And then my parents, you know, they're, they're loving it. Now, in that moment, unless you're a supreme older brother, and maybe I was, I mean, I was literally the older brother, is you wouldn't have thought about all, the, all that bad stuff. Or maybe you would have thought he shouldn't be rejoicing because he doesn't deserve that. And I wonder if that's maybe sometimes how we think about how the Father is to us. You shouldn't enjoy those gifts I give you because you're just a low-down, dirty sinner. That is not the posture of the Father. Some of you have sinned greatly and are sinning greatly. Some of you have suffered greatly and are suffering greatly. And you might think the mature thing for you to do would just to not, not, not have so much joy. Some of us have experienced people in our lives that, don't that want to give us gifts but don't really want us to enjoy them that much. They want to kind of keep us under their, keep, use it against us. Hey, don't forget what I gave you. Or you can only enjoy that as long as you're faithful to me. You know what I mean? As long as you're, we stay good. And you know, you might even have received a gift from somebody who's like that, and you would think something like, well, now that I'm not good with them, I probably just need to sell this gift or not really use this gift. That is the exact opposite of the scandalous good news of God's grace. You're thinking, but my, my, my 
my sin, my suffering, my shame. I shouldn't, I shouldn't deserve it. Guess what this text is saying? Yeah, you're right. But that's not the point. He gave you this gift and He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to enjoy it. He prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. This is why Martin Luther said, and this is taken wrong sometimes, he says, he talks about sinning boldly. Not that you should sin, right? That grace may abound. But you should realize, hey, in this life, I am never going to have it all together. And I am not going to therefore say, I do not deserve to enjoy the gift of my Father. He wants me to enjoy it. He wants me to rejoice. And in that joy, we actually find the strength to grow. Now, some of you super good folks might not like that, but us bad folks, we love to hear that. <laughs> right? That's why our church is called Matthew's Table. Right? That's why this Sunday gathering is not our primary organizing structure. It's why we don't say, like some people say, our church will only be as strong as our Sunday gathering is. It's why we go out into the world to be communities who are families of servants, who are making disciples, who take this joy into the world and say it doesn't matter how broken you are, how burnt out you are, how bored you are with life. There is good news through the finished work of Jesus in the world, in the reality, in the now. That's why Wednesday night at our family meal, it was so beautiful at the end to look over there and see this senior adult woman begin to dance. And I, I thought I was videoing it, but I wasn't. Y'all ever did that before? You're just sitting there holding your phone. So I can't prove it, but they're witnesses. And to realize that that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. To see people rejoicing. It just, to see these people sitting there who I know have been loved so well throughout the week. I want to brag on them a little bit because it's, it's joy. It's, it's the way Rose and Corey and their families have loved Mary Lou right across the street here. And to see her sitting there, you know what? That'll be her Christmas party. And to see her rejoicing, it's to see uh, Charlie sitting back there who Ralph's welcomed into the gym. And he probably don't want me to say this, those boys ain't giving him a red cent to come over there and work out. He's loving them. And to walk by there with Cassie and see Charlie out there grinning ear to ear, that's the joy that we get to share with other people. The Nicholas is giving rides for people. Don't tell anybody about it. Find out they're giving rides for these families in our MC. Toby and Becky taking Frank and other people to the store on errands. The, the, the Lars family loving all these children of parents that are incarcerated. We got students who are loving at the Boys and Girls Club. Oh, Drake over here showing up to the neighborhood Thanksgiving. Now, here, now here's where, where i got to be careful, but I think they can handle it. None of those people got it all together <laughs> that I just named. Half the time we're probably just showing up, doing the best we can to show up, right? 
Now what the world and the flesh and the devil would want us to do is hang our heads down and say because we aren't perfect, then we don't get to enjoy the mission. And we don't get to share it. Josh and Green here led, leading us in a reenactment of the Christmas story the other night. Oh, six-year-old Caleb coming out of Kaylee's shirt as the baby Jesus. <laughs> this is the scandalous grace of the gospel. What is Romans 5, 10, and 11 saying? Don't, don't wait till you think you deserve to enjoy the gospel before you start enjoying it. And before you start sharing it with other people. Or we might as well just all go home. This is why we have to learn to locate ourselves. We're probably going to be talking about this a lot this next year. In this Sunday gathering, in our missional communities, in our fight clubs, in our workplaces, in our homes. Is to ask ourselves, am I, am I stepping into this space expecting someone else to provide for me a certain type of experience? Or am I stepping into these spaces knowing who I am and what is mine in Jesus's? And a part of that's joy. Is that your posture? Are you fighting to have a posture of joy? Not a fakeness. Not that it says there's no sorrow, there's no sin. But in it. Your posture at work. Yeah, but my boss. But my schedule. Your posture at home. Yeah, but my spouse. Yeah, but my kids. Yeah, but my parents. Do we know how to access the joy that we have by faith? This is our call. This is a stock illustration, but as we come to the Lord's table, I, I, I find it helpful. I don't know if this is true. When you find these things, preachers make up all kinds of stuff. But anyway, it says, During the initial construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, there were no safety devices, and 23 people fell to their deaths. But for the final part of the project, there was a large net used as a safety precaution. So 10 men fell during that part, but they were saved. But he said what was most interesting is that after the net was installed, 25% more work was accomplished. Why? Because they knew that if they fell, they'd still be safe. It led to more work. It led to more effort. It led to more growth. Imagine them working now, not with fear, but with joy. Now imagine if we really, really experience that safety net of the gospel. We are all going to fall. But Jesus says, I'm holding you with my hand and I will never let go. I loved you enough to come at that first Christmas. I loved you enough to go to the cross and I'm not going to let you go. Imagine if you brought that into your everyday life. Into your homes, into your workplaces, your neighborhoods. Into your missional community, your fight clubs, your own personal communion. That you're like, hey, I can go for this. I can receive this. I can rejoice in this. And yeah, I'm going to fall, but he's going to catch me. You would not have to fake anymore. You could be real, but you could have real hope. And you could learn to rejoice in the gospel now not just the gospel later. Father, we thank you.
for the good news that we will now taste and see in the bread and the cup. We thank you, Jesus, for your body given for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your bloodshed. And as we come now to, to give thanks, help us to rejoice around this table. Help us as a church to know that it's just as safe to rejoice as it is to repent. And as we mourn, may we mourn with hope in your comfort that is settled and secure because of Christmas, because of the cross, the resurrection, and you will come again. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.